Welcome back to our study of the book of Philippians called The Better Brand of Happiness. This is session 29, and uh, again, this session continues our study at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you would turn there, Philippians chapter 4, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Philippians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. In this way, dear friends, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. We began this uh, session, or we began, we began studying this paragraph um, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of sessions previous to this, and my big idea for this paragraph was um, that standing firm in the Lord means, among other things, resolving problems with other believers. Paul has been talking um, about standing firm in the Lord for several paragraphs, going all the way back to chapter 1, and after talking about what that means and applying it in general ways, he now applies it in a specific way. And so verse 1, when Paul says, stand firm in the Lord, He's repeating something that he said before and is transitioning from what he's been teaching since chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 3. And now it moves forward. He moves forward and takes that truth of standing firm in the Lord and applies it to a particular situation that the church in Philippi was facing. The main thought in verse 1 or the main thought of this paragraph is really stand firm in the Lord in this way. But it's applied to a particular problem within the church, and that problem involves these two women in verse 2, Euodia and Syntyche. The the actual problem between them, we're not sure precisely what it was composed of. It doesn't seem like it was composed of um, something that could necessarily be categorized as sin, because Paul and the church handled sin differently than this, other than, you know, you don't tell two people or one person who's sinning against another, just get along with each other. But that's in essence what Paul is doing. And so whatever's happening between them is probably not sin in itself. Rather, it's just an expression of disunity of some sort. It's a um, reflection of two people who just didn't get along with each other, just perhaps didn't like each other personally. And Paul says, I am pleading with you to put aside your issues with each other and to find unity in the Lord. He uses the word plead twice in the verse 2. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. And his plea is to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's a plea to unity. And Paul appealed to them directly by name. The basis of his appeal was their common faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever they disagreed about, whatever personality differences made them... um, unlikable toward each other, should have been transcended by the one thing they did have in common, which was their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul appeals to that and says, this should be something that you should be able to get your minds together on. This should be something that if you think the same way about, should cause you to be able to be unified in Jesus Christ. And I used the analogy last time of um, instruments that are tuned to a common source. Um, In an orchestra, they may tune to the piano, which is the hardest instrument to tune because it involves bringing in a technician and taking several hours. 
And so an orchestra, if they're playing with a piano, may tune to the piano, um, or they may tune to some other instrument. They may tune to the first violin or to the oboe, but all the instruments need to be tuned to something. Otherwise, if they're not all tuned to the same thing, they will, be, they will play out of tune, and that will sound uh, bad when they play together. And so in the same way, Paul says, tune your minds, tune your hearts, tune your attitudes toward each other to Jesus Christ. And so Paul pleads with them, and he pleads with them directly by name, an unusual thing in verse 2. Now this morning, as we move forward into verse 3, we see that, um, well, before we move forward into verse 3, I should say that Paul um, not only pleaded with them personally, but he also pleaded with them publicly. Remember that Paul's letters to the churches didn't just go to the churches that received them. As I mentioned last time, it was unusual for Paul to specify people in the church in this way. He often talked about people in the church. He talked personally by name about his companions that traveled with him, which he did earlier in this letter and will do later. He um, talked specifically to people in the church. Sometimes um, false teachers in the church were named by Paul, or sometimes um, personal greetings were sent, often were sent by name to people in the church. But it's really rare for Paul to rebuke believers in the church this way, and yet he does so. And Paul does it, in a sense, publicly, because Paul's letters were written to be read publicly in front of the entire body of believers. When this letter arrived in the church in Philippi, whoever read it, one of the elders, probably received it and probably read it personally himself, but it was expected and it was practiced in the church that the next Sunday when the church would gather together for worship, that someone would read this letter out loud publicly to the church. And so that was the intention and that was the practice of these churches. But also it's helpful to remember that from the very beginning, Paul's letters, after they were delivered to the churches they were written to, were immediately copied and sent to other churches. And so that means that not only did the church in Philippi read about Euodia and Syntyche, but then a copy was made and sent maybe to Ephesus, sent to Colossae, sent to the various churches that Paul had started, and that letter would be read aloud there. And so if it wasn't bad enough to be called out publicly by Paul in a letter written to your own church, imagine how embarrassing it would be to know that your name is going to be read in all these other churches around the world, that all these other believers would find out about your conflict with another person, and they would know your name in the process. It's bad enough to be called out in front of your own church Imagine having your name committed this way in the pages of Holy Scripture for not only other believers to read during your time, but down through the ages, thousands of years. Christians have been reading these words and scolding these women in our hearts for not agreeing with one another. That's, that's not something any one of us probably would wish for or ask for. If, you're going to be, if your name's going to be included in Scripture, this is not the way to have it done. And yet Paul did this unusual thing because a godly resolution was important to him. He wasn't trying to shame these people. He wanted them to fix the problem. It was important to him. It was important to Christ who gave himself for these women. And of course, it was possible through Christ as well. In verse 3, Paul then goes from speaking to them personally and publicly 
to enlisting others for their help. Verse 3 says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul here appeals to others in the church at Philippi and says, you need to get involved in this too. Get involved in it not in a way that takes sides that would split the church. That's usually what happens, sadly, when people in the church have disagreements. Instead, Paul says, you need to get, into invo- you need to get involved in it to bring them together, to bring a godly resolution to this. And he mentions somebody in verse 3 that's tra- that, whose name is translated, or whose title is translated, in verse 3, my true companion. Paul appeals to whoever this person is by name. Well, not by name, but by a title that he created for this person. But he has somebody specifically in mind. He says, I ask you, you my true companion, to help these women in this way. Now, who is this man of mystery? Well, we don't know. And so any attempt to identify this person is speculative in every way, a complete guess. But it's not a completely random guess, and guessing at interpretive questions has never stopped commentators from doing so, and so commentators have spent some time trying to identify the person involved here, and it's kind of an interesting discussion, and so let me summarize it for you a little bit. It can't be Epaphroditus or Timothy because they were with Paul when Paul wrote this. Paul may have, and probably did, have um, the idea in mind that Epaphroditus could help with this situation too, but I don't think Paul was referring to him because he's already mentioned his name. Why wouldn't he mention it again? And so it's probably not these two people that have already been mentioned by Paul. They're with Paul, and Paul talks about sending them, but I don't think these are the people he's referring to. One commentator suggests that the person Paul means in verse 3 is Luke the author of the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And the reason that author speculates this is that the book of Acts gives signals to us about when Luke was traveling with Paul and when he wasn't traveling with Paul. If you read the book of Acts and you pay attention to the pronouns in the book of Acts, you'll see that at times during Paul's travels, the writer of the book of Acts says, we did this. And then he'll say, Paul and Silas did that, okay? And so, and then it will say they. And so the we, they differences in the book of Acts signal times when Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, was traveling with Paul and times when he was not. An example of this is in Acts 16, verse 10, or verse 40, I mean, Acts 16, 40, which says, pay attention to the pronouns. After Paul and Silas came out of prison... They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. All right, and so the pronouns indicate that Paul and Silas are the two people indicated here. And the book of Acts has this language in it throughout. But other times, the writer of Acts uses the word we, as I said, in describing Paul's travels. Another example happens in the same chapter I just quoted from. Acts 16. In Acts 16.12, the scripture says, from there we travel to Philippi. Where's Philippi? Well, it's the very city where this letter was sent. 
All right, and so the writer of Acts says in Acts 16, 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So in Acts 16, 12, Luke, the author of Acts, says we traveled to Philippi and we stayed there several days. And then later on in Acts 16, 40, when they were still in Philippi, Luke wrote, Paul and Silas came out of prison and then they left. What's the implication here? That Luke came to Philippi with Paul and Silas, and he stayed there when Paul and Silas left. That's what Acts 16 indicates to us in the changes in pronouns. And so the we language in Acts stops from Acts 16, when Paul left Philippi, until Acts 20, when, you're never going to guess, Paul returned to Philippi. And then the we language resumes. Acts 16, or sorry, Acts 20, verse 6 says, But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later, we, uh, five days later, joined others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And so there's this gap between Acts 16 and Acts 20, where the we language stops. And in both cases, Philippi is the place where the language stops and restarts. And so the implication is very strong in these, in these words that Luke stayed in Philippi for four years from Acts 16 to Acts 20 when Paul and Silas left. And we know that the letter, or we, I mean, there's very good evidence, there's very good reasons to think that this letter Philippians was written during that four-year span where Luke was in Philippi and Paul and Silas were elsewhere. And so at least one commentator thinks the person that Paul's referring to in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion. A lot of people, or at least one commentator thinks, and I think he's right, I, I, I think his logic is really good here, that this person is Luke, that Paul is appealing to Luke without naming him to say, Luke, you need to get involved in this. You need to help these women get their act together and get on the same page to get in tune with Jesus Christ. Now, the uh, language that we have here in verse 3, my true companion, is a, an English gloss. It's an English, almost paraphrase isn't the right word because it's a translation, but it's not a literal translation. Literally, the translation would be my loyal yoke fellow, all right? But Paul kind of coins a word here that he never uses anywhere else in the Bible. And the image behind the word is of two animals that are yoked together to plow a field, or to, you know, or to do some other kind of work, like maybe pull a stump out of the ground, or you know, to do something heavy, okay? You would yoke two animals together to harness their power and get more pull from them. The language that Paul uses when he says in verse 3, my true companion, that, that, that uh, English translation, that English gloss, glosses over the, the farm analogy that Paul is making here. What he's really calling this person, whoever he is, is someone who's been in the yoke serving Jesus Christ with me, someone who's been part of my ministry. And again, that also would indicate somebody like Luke, who had traveled with Paul and had spent time working with him. Now, but some people think that this word, uh, loyal yoke fellow, the more literal translation, is actually a proper name, because Paul never uses it anywhere else in the Bible. And so somebody thinks this is somebody's name. 
Seems unlikely to me, but that's another suggestion. Another suggestion beyond that is that Paul, in a sense, kind of personifies the whole church and acts like the body of believers is one person, and he gives them this name, the Church of the Loyal Yoke Fellow, okay? And he's kind of calling them all together to act as one person. That doesn't seem very likely to me. I think the Luke interpretation is the most likely one. And if it's not Luke, I think there is some particular person that Paul has in mind here. Why he doesn't want to name this person, I don't know. Nobody does. But the point of the matter is, Paul is calling on somebody else in the church to step up and assist in this matter, to get involved in the situation, to try to resolve the conflict between these two women. This is someone that Paul trusted, someone that Paul respected, and Paul calls on him to help. Notice again in verse 3, he says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. The word help is a word that calls for assistance. It's used in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, of seizing a huge catch of fish and where the disciples who were fishermen call, call to their partners and say, come on, help us, help us pull this in. Okay, it's a call for assistance. And Paul is calling on everyone in the church, but especially this person in particular, to help him help them resolve the problem. Now, you know in your own life that it's possible to resolve problems with another person on your own. Every one of us has had a situation where we've had a strained relationship with another person and either that person came to us seeking to resolve it or we went to them, but we're all familiar with kind of two-party resolutions where the two people who are at odds with each other try and often succeed to talk out their differences to seek forgiveness where possible, or at least just to clear the air so that it, it isn't so tense. And so it's possible for two people to solve their own problems with each other. But not always. Sometimes two people are so entrenched in their own position. They're so convinced of their own righteousness or of the other person's sin against them, or the other person's, you know, bad motives, or the other person's reckless disregard for their feelings, or whatever, that they just refuse to move. The idea of being entrenched is a word that we use, but it kind of comes from the military, right, where, where infantrymen kind of dig their own trench, and they're just kind of shooting at each other, right, and nobody's getting out to try to come toward the other, um, this is kind of the, the image that, that comes to mind for me, is two people who have dug in and they're going to defend their position no matter what. They're not going to retreat and they're not going to put down their weapons and surrender. They're going to keep fighting. Sometimes the only way for two people who are in a position like this to cease fire and to seek reconciliation is for another party, someone who loves both of them and isn't committed to either one of their either the ego or the position of either one of them, but is committed to seeing the relationship restored, sometimes it's necessary for that person, a third party, to come along and coax both sides into a meeting where they hash out their differences and resolve them properly. We've all 
been involved in situations like that too, haven't we? Maybe you've been the third party, maybe you've had a third party come along and help you resolve a problem, but this is uh, something that we're well familiar with. And really, when you think about it, if you've ever experienced um, a situation where a third party came and helped people who were at war with one another to resolve the problem, maybe your thought is, why don't people do this more often? Why don't people care enough to get involved? Well, the, the answer to that, there's, there's multiple answers to it. But the truth of the matter is there's risk involved in getting involved in somebody else's stuff. You might alienate two friends. Or you might alienate one side or the other. You might be deceived by a person, and you might get ticked off in the process yourself. The book of Proverbs cautions against meddling, which, see, that's one way that people try to get involved, but they, don't, they do it in a kind of half-hearted way. They, they do it in a way that kind of preserves their ego. They gossip with each side. Maybe well-intentioned, maybe not, maybe a mix of the two, but instead of really trying to bring two sides together, they talk to one side, they talk to the other side, and they make the problem worse. And the, the book of Proverbs warns against this kind of meddling. In Proverbs 26, 17, it says, like one who seizes the dog, a dog by the ears. Don't do this, all right? But by someone who picks up a dog by his ears, Proverbs says, is someone who meddles in a quarrel not his own. Sometimes the wisest course of action is to stay out of somebody else's business. Especially when there isn't a proper basis for resolving that issue. And so why don't people help more often to resolve problems like this? Well, because there's a risk to it. And the Bible tells us to be cautious about doing it. But the truth of the matter is that a mature Christian can often help to repair broken relationships between two people. Instead of lining up one side or the other, which people tend to do, you stand in the middle and you call both sides to come together. To come together to the side of Jesus Christ. That's the basis on which Paul calls these women together. Remember in verse 2 he says, I plead with you to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's their relationship with Christ that should provide the common ground that helps them to reconcile with one another. And so Paul cared about the relationship of these two women because of the division that it was causing in the church, but he cared about it for another reason, and that's because of their connection to him in the gospel. These are not just two people in the church. These are two people who had served with him in the gospel. Look again at verse 3. He says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, now notice this phrase, this clause, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Both of these women had worked with Paul in some capacity, in some way in his ministry. Paul didn't know them as acquaintances in the church of Philippi. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I remember meeting Euodia once. No, Euodia and Syntyche were deeply involved in Paul's ministry during the time he spent in Philippi and probably beyond that even. They were people that he had spent personal time with along with other people as they tried to reach others for Jesus Christ and as they tried to um, build up the believers, the body of Christ in Philippi. 
These people had served together in the cause of the gospel with Paul. The word contended, translated contended in verse 3, when Paul says, they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. That word contended means to fight together. At one point, they had been entrenched, okay, in that same trench on both sides of Paul, fighting the enemy, fighting Satan, fighting unbelief, fighting sin and everything that goes against the gospel of Christ. These women had been part of Paul's battles. They'd worked with him in the tough moments of his ministry in Philippi. They were not just people who showed up on Sunday and sat in the back of the church building. There was no church building, but sat in the back of the home where they met or wherever they met. They just sort of sat in the, in the corners of the room, keeping their eyes down and their, you know, their words to themselves. That's not who these people were. They didn't just sit there giving each other the evil eye and not being involved in the church. No, at one point they had been cooperative with Paul, and the implication is they'd been cooperative with each other for the gospel. Also in verse 3, we have another man named. Verse 3 says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement. So Paul adds another person who had been part of his ministry, who had worked with him and fought with him for the gospel of Christ in Philippi. This man, Clement, only appears here. His name only appears here in the New Testament. But he's been identified with someone that we know from church history. So outside of the Bible and in the era after the Bible was written, we have historical documents about what the early church was like and how the gospel spread beyond the, um, the, the apostles in the first century. And this man, Clement, who is named here in verse 3, is not identified further, but tradition and these extra-biblical documents all testify that this man is, came to be known as Clement of Rome, a leader of the church in Rome, after the death of Paul and the other apostles. And so here's another godly man, another man who became a much more prominent leader in the church in, year, in years past. And Paul says, they're like him, these two women who were at each other's throats at the time. Paul considered them to be just as integral to his ministry, just as um, important and invested in the work that he did for Christ as Clement it was. It's quite a high thing to say about them. Paul also affirms their faith in Christ in verse 3. He says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. That last phrase, whose names are in the book of life, is a clear signal that Paul regards both of these women to be genuine believers in Jesus Christ. That phrase, whose names are in the book of life, refers to an old idea. It might be older than you realize. It's the idea that God has recorded, as if in a book, the names of everyone who belongs to him. Now understand, God is a spirit being. He does not occupy a body. And that means, almost certainly, that there's no literal book that God literally writes people's names down in. It's an image that helps us to understand that God at the end of time does not arbitrarily say, okay, you're in heaven and you're in heaven and you're in heaven and you aren't. God doesn't make that decision. 
on the day of judgment. Instead, the Bible says God has made these decisions and recorded these names in eternity past, if we understand our theology and the scriptures properly. But the point is that God has made a permanent record of these things, that God knows who is in. It's, it's as solid as if it were recorded in a book, and it's a, that objective too. See, that's like in a court trial, if you have printed documents that are old and that have been around for a while, that carries a lot of weight in terms of evidence. That's what the image of the book of life is getting at. And the Bible comes to this image from a, a long time in the past and over and over again to say that God knows and God is recorded in an objective way who belongs to him and who doesn't. Who is going to receive eternal life and who doesn't? How old is this image? It's old. It goes back to Exodus 32, 32, where Moses pleaded with God to forgive Israel and said these words, but now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. That's, really, that's a really old reference. And it's not the only time. And We could look at others, but in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 and verse 15, the Bible says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Same terminology Paul uses here. And then verse 15 of Revelation 20 says, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So Paul here draws on an old image that God knows and God has recorded the names of everyone who belongs to him as if it were written in a book. And Paul affirms that Euodia is in the book of life and that Syntyche is in the book of life and that my, his loyal yoke fellow, whoever that is, Luke or whoever, he's in the book of life and Clement is in the book of life and other people are in the book of life. He's saying, all of you people belong to Christ. I know that you do. Paul had no question about the sincerity and legitimacy of the faith of these people. And yet they were not acting in a Christ-like way. These people did not need to be saved. They needed to be reminded that they are sisters in Jesus Christ and that they in Christ have the most important foundation for unity that any two people on earth could ever have. And so that's what this passage is all about. It's Paul teaching us. It's God's word teaching us and affirming to us the importance of standing together, standing firm in the Lord by resolving our problems with others in a biblical way. And before we leave this section, I think it's helpful for us to think about its application to us again. It applies to us if we're involved in a conflict with another Christian or if we are aware of a conflict between other Christians. It calls us either to put down our arms and put down our pride and put down whatever it is that's causing us to be in conflict with others and to at least seek reconciliation. Or if we're on the outside and we're not one of the two parties of the reconciliation, it calls us to help. It calls us not to be bystanders. It calls us to at least try to bring reconciliation to a situation like this. And it's helpful for us to think about how we might be involved in obeying what's 
commanded of other people in this passage of Scripture. If my life and my ministry are about me, then I can be pretty picky about who I allow into my life and my ministry. I could choose to admit only people that I like or people whose benefit I see immediately. I can only allow them into my life if my life and ministry are about me. But as a believer in Christ, my life is not my own. To borrow from the words of 1 Corinthians 6.20, I was bought with a price. That means I belong to Jesus Christ. That verse, 1 Corinthians 6.20, goes on to say that I must glorify God in my body in in the context of sexual purity. But more than my body belongs to Jesus Christ. All of me, all of my life belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, including my relationships with other people. Whether the way I treat them and regard them is righteous and godly or not. So the way that I assess other people, the opinion that I have of them, the way that I treat them, and the way that I expect them to treat me, if it's about me, I can make decisions about that. If it's about Christ, then I don't have the right to put my own assessment on them. Even though I may not like another person who belongs to Christ, I have no right to shun that person. I have no right to mistreat him or her. That person, too, was bought at a price and belongs to God if they're a believer. He he or she is part of God's family. Their name is in the book of life. I'm going to have to spend eternity with them. Also, I think it's helpful to know that that person is growing in Christ. I mean, if they really are in the book of life, then the Holy Spirit is not leaving them alone. The Word of God is working on them. The Spirit of God is drawing them toward obedience. The church is working on them. All of the means of grace are operating at some level in that person's life, moving them toward Christ-likeness. And so while they may be in a, stuck in a place of sin or personal immaturity or spiritual immaturity, I can't just disregard them. I have to say, well, God's working on that person too. And so like Jesus, who loved us when we were unlovely and really unlovable, you and I need to learn as Christians to love others around us, whether we find them likable or not. And remember that example of tuning instruments. If all the instruments tune to the piano or the oboe or to the same electronic uh, tuning um, gizmo or to a tuning fork, if they all tune to the same thing, the the band will tend to play in tune. If I think I'm the tuning fork, then I will expect and demand that people change themselves in order to tune to me. But if I realize that I'm in Christ, that He is the Lord, and that that He is the only one who is truly in tune, because He is God in His very nature, then I I need to realize that I need to change to tune up to Him. And then as I change to be in tune with Jesus Christ and other believers change to be in tune with Jesus Christ, then we'll all be in tune because we're all tuning to the same source, an infallible source, a perfect source, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes, as verse 3 tells us, we need help getting tuned to Christ. I remember when I played trumpet in the band in high school, 
you know, just popping my instrument out and just playing it, like not even thinking about tuning. And sometimes the, the director would say, you know, Brian, you're flat or you're sharp, you know, and you need to tune up. And so they would have, he would have somebody else play a note or he would use this tuning thing and I would have to tune up to that. And I, sometimes I couldn't really tell. Like I, I might know that I was not, I was out of tune, but I couldn't really tell if I was flat or sharp. And so he would have to say, nope, you're flat, you know, um, pull the slide out, I think is how you change that. It's been a long time since I played the trumpet. So the point is, like, sometimes we need somebody else to help us, to show us and to demonstrate to us that we are out of tune and to help us know how to get into tune with other people. And so maybe your role is to tune up to Jesus Christ. I mean, all of us, it is to some degree. But maybe you need to be the person who helps other people by saying, look, you're, you're not in tune with Christ. The fact that you have a conflict means something is going wrong. Maybe not that you're in sin necessarily, but somehow you're not thinking the same way. Remember, that was the command in verse 2, to have the same mind in the Lord. It's trying to help people tune their minds to Jesus Christ. And maybe that's your role. You need to step in and help two people get tuned up because they can't see, they can't hear the dissonance between them. One more thing here I think is necessary to say, and that's in a large orchestra, each instrument contributes something different to the sound the orchestra makes. And it's not the same thing. The flute plays at a much higher pitch than the tuba does. It also has a different tonal quality to it because it's a different type of instrument made from different stuff and played by a different person. Even in the same instrument group, the first violins play a different part than the second violins. They're playing the same instrument and they're all tuned together, but they're not playing the same part. Some instruments declare the melody in, a, in an orchestral piece, and the other instruments harmonize with that. That means that being of the same mind in Christ doesn't mean we all have to have the same personality or the same interests or the same background or the same education or the same anything, really. We can be very different from one another. God does not call us to be the same. He calls us to be who he made us to be, but in Christ to tune to his will, and that means we play together in harmony. We all have different gifts. That means we do different things. But just as an orchestra made up of different instruments playing different parts sounds good together because they're in tune and playing in harmony with one another, so in the church, as we pursue Christ and as he is our mindset and as we do different things in the church, it doesn't create dissonance. It creates harmony. It creates beautiful music. In the, in the years of the Lord and in the world around us that he is calling to follow him in faith. You don't have to mute or change your personality to be of the same mind in the Lord as verse 2 commands. What God wants for us is to tune to Christ and then to play together in harmony a song that glorifies God. When we act as if we're the tuning fork, the one to whom all others must tune themselves, we may find a kind of happiness as long as everyone tunes up to us. But you know that that's not realistic. But when we tune our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can play in harmony with each other, we will find a better brand of happiness.